Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth, while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now, I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. Scott Harrison is an entrepreneur, philanthropist, and best-selling author on a mission to bring clean drinking water to every person on earth who needs it. And he's not just talking about it, he's actually doing it. Scott is the founder and CEO of Charity Water, one of the fastest-growing nonprofits in history with more than a million supporters worldwide that raised over $700 million and funded over 111,000 water projects in 29 countries. Scott has provided over 15.5 million people with clean, safe drinking water through his charity. After a decade of pure indulgence as a nightclub promoter, Scott fell apart physically and emotionally. He spent two years volunteering as a photojournalist on a hospital ship off the coast of Liberia and came back to New York City on a mission to bring clean drinking water to people worldwide. He details his incredible journey in his best-selling book, Thirst, a story of redemption, compassion, and a mission to bring clean water to the world. In our conversation, we go over his journey from being attached to materialism to devoting his life to serving others, his innovative business model for scaling nonprofits that other organizations fail to use, and his vision for where Charity Water is headed in the future. One more thing before we get to today's interview, Scott has a special gift for Lifestyle Investor podcast listeners. He's sharing his documentary, The Spring which tells the full story of how he set out to solve the water crisis. Today, there are more than a million people who have joined him on his mission. To get access, visit justindonald.com forward slash 109. It's also worth noting that Giving Tuesday is next week, which is the world's largest generosity movement. So if you're looking for a way to give back and donate to a worthy cause, I highly recommend checking out Charity Water. Thanks for listening, and without further delay, my conversation with Scott Harrison. All right, what's up, Scott? How are you today? What's up, Justin? It's good to be here. Hey, it's great to have you as well, and I'm just so excited, number one, that our mutual friend Brad Lominick connected us, and number two, to share your incredible story and all the cool things you're doing with my audience. Well, thanks. And Brad is a is a fantastic connector. He he took a, a shot on me many, many, many years ago at a conference. And uh, we've been we've been friends ever since. Oh, that's awesome. I just tried to not embarrass him. I love it. Well, Brad is incredible. And, you know, I had him on my show for anyone listening that wants to check more out about Brad. He's got a killer story and is doing amazing things in the world, too. So that's awesome. So 
I'd love to just kind of like dig in because you've done some really remarkable things. You know, a lot of people run companies where they find like this niche or this, you know, opportunity for huge profit. You've got other people that start companies and more correctly said organizations, right? Where you are focused on filling a true need and it may not be profit oriented. Now, some they of the have best... a term for that now. They didn't when I started. Now it's called a social entrepreneur. <laughs> there it is. There it is. So walk us through becoming a social entrepreneur and what that looked like. You know, what where did this term come from? Where were you beforehand? Because you were kind of down and out for a little bit, right? Well, my my first career was trying to make a lot of money and uh, become rich and famous through the nightlife world in Manhattan. So I, I moved to New York City when I was 18. The classic rebellion story, you know, Christian upbringing, church kid. I'm like, I don't want anything to do with any of that. I want to drink. I want to have drugs. I want to have sex and I want to party. And the best way to do all of those things, I learned, was to become a nightclub promoter. And this was a job where you could party for a living and make a lot of money doing it. So I spent my first 10 years of my career, I guess, if you could call it that, filling up 40 different New York City nightlife venues with, you know, kind of the rich and famous people who didn't mind spending $1,000 on a bottle of champagne that cost $40 or now it's probably $40 a cocktail. Back then it was 25 and it was profane. So that was kind of the first career, I guess. And, and it was an asset light business. We would build up a big guest list and we would bring the people to whatever the hottest club was at the moment. And then when that club wasn't hot anymore, we would just bring everybody to the next one. And, you know, I, I guess, uh, you know, my life at 28 years old was, I collected many of the markers of success that I'd been after. Uh, my girlfriend at the time was on the cover of fashion magazines and I drove a BMW. I had a New York City apartment with a grand piano in it. And, you know, it was a lot of look at me, I've arrived. And inside, you know, it was a very different story. I was morally bankrupt. I was spiritually bankrupt. I was living the most hedonistic, selfish, you know, sycophantic existence that you might imagine. And I kind of hit a wall at 28. I was actually net negative for society. Not only was I not contributing anything to the benefit of others, I was really tearing down, you know, to kind of have success in this world. You know, the more money you spent on alcohol, you know, the more you partied, the later I could send you home, you know, at three or four in the morning out of your mind, you know, the more money we made. So I had a, a radical change at 28 and I asked myself, I, I came back to a very lost faith as a kid, you know, with a different lens as a more mature adult. <laughs> well, not, not sure about the mature part, but as an adult and asked myself this question, what would the opposite of my life look like? Would I be able to offer something to the world or to others? Could I be useful? And that led me to uh, a humanitarian volunteer experience in the poorest country in the world, Liberia, West Africa at the time. And I joined a medical mission as a photojournalist after selling everything I owned. And that was really the start of, uh, I guess, this hopefully a uh, much longer chapter in, in my life that's, that's been about 17 years and, and counting now. Wow. You know, Scott, there, there's so much to unpackage in this. And 
you know, I love this self-discovery that you had. And I'm curious, was there a moment where maybe business was failing or there were issues where you could see it coming apart or was business booming and you just felt like you had to get out of here? This this wasn't the right life for you? Like what what was kind of the impetus to this massive life change? Kind of yes and yes and yes and yes. <laughs> So I think it started with just this, this realization that I was deeply unhappy and really so was everyone else. And this happened in, in Punta del Esta, Uruguay. It was New Year's Eve vacation. We just had it all. I mean, there were servants waiting on us, picking up our towels as we moved from, you know, beach chair to beach chair. There was a yacht that came with the house, spending thousands of dollars on fireworks. It was kind of the epitome of success in the hedonistic world. And I just realized it was like the music stopped. And I, and for the first time, I didn't have a chair to sit down. I was just kind of looking around. So that started a process of discovery of trying to reclaim a lost morality, a lost faith, you know, asking these existential questions. Like if I died today, what was my purpose on the planet? You know, I certainly didn't make my parents proud. My Tombstone might read, here lies a guy who got a million people wasted. And, you know, that, that's not really good for the world. So it started there. And then, you know, I remember trying to go back to church and trying to pray again and, you know, asking myself the questions, what did I still believe, you know, from the childhood, the stuff that was kind of maybe force fed a little bit to me as a kid. And then there was a moment in nightlife where I got a guy fired for stealing. And he came after me with a gun. And you have to understand in nightlife, you're threatened all the time. I mean, you, you, you don't let people into your clubs and they say, I'm going to come back and kill you. So this was, you know, one in a long series of threats over a decade, but it was a, a really critical moment. And I felt like, you know, this is the time to get out and never set foot back into this business. So, you know, yeah, we were doing fine. We were making money. We were offered a partnership in a new restaurant. So I was going to, you know, finally become kind of an owner in something. But it, it was a really critical moment where, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I wasn't sure how to take, how, how seriously to really take it. And that wow. led to just this massive reinvention. And, you know, I, I, I think I realized, uh, Justin, you know, a pivot was not needed. This was not a small course correction that was needed in my life. It was just, you know, do and say and think the exact opposite and see where that takes you. So that's, that's why, you know, it was an extreme situation. I actually wound up having to pay $500 a month just for the pleasure of serving this organization as a humanitarian. Wow. Big difference there. And, you know, I'm glad I asked that follow-up question because it just shines so much more light on what happened, the epiphany that you had and what better place than Punta del Este. And for those that are unfamiliar, you know, you kind of have these hot spots all around the world. I think most people are probably familiar with Saint-Tropez, right? Yeah, right. And, and that whole area, like, you know, the, the Monte Carlo, uh, Saint-Tropez, like coast, you've got Cannes, you've got all kinds of stuff right there. And then, you know, on the Eastern European side, a lot of people will say like maybe Budva is that in Montenegro. Yep. Buzios in Brazil. Yeah. But in Uruguay or in, you know, I would say in all of South America, there are a few different hotspots, but Punta del Este is one of the most spectacular places 
in the entire continent. And uh, it's it's cool to hear that, you know, that's where it happened in this place that kind of was flattering from the standpoint of what you did as a yep. profession, right? Yep. So there, there's some irony in that. And so with your business, were you in a position where you were able to sell your interests or was the business yours and without you, it collapsed? Like, what did that look like when you left? Well, I will say that one of the problems with being a nightclub promoter, and, and I know this is not unique to my business partner and, and I, you are typically spending more than you're making. So no matter how, because you're trying to keep up with, you know, the, the, the Joneses and the Joneses have orders of magnitude more, right? Because our clients are the people that could drop $10,000 on alcohol in a single night. So we're flying around in other people's private planes. It's other people's Amex black cards taking care of the $21,000 dinner, you know, at the fancy restaurant with all the models and the celebrities. So it, we were, no, the answer is, uh, it, it was all about us and our list and, and the charisma of the promoter. But, you know, we weren't savers. I mean, when I kind of came to an end, you know, I was a couple paychecks away. So while we made great money, we spent every single penny of it. Uh, which is, you know, very different, obviously, than the life I, I live now. And there was no giving, you know, as a component. I mean, now, you know, I've raised $700 million of, of kind of charitable capital. And I'm, I get to work with some of the most generous people in the world. That was not me. I mean, that was foreign to me. To give a $10 or $50 donation to a charity was something I would have never done over those 10 years. It was all about, you know, spending money towards to make me happy. Mm, that's a great realization. What are you getting from the spending of those dollars? Because there are a lot of people that do spend the majority of what they make. Some people, they don't make a lot. And so it's reasonable to say, yeah, you live in an expensive city. You're going to yep. spend most of what you make, even though there are probably still some ways to mitigate that if you really get creative. There are other people that make a ton of money. And we have people that have joined my Lifestyle Investor Mastermind, for example, that have made millions upon millions of dollars and have spent every single penny of it and are ready for a change, ready for something new, ready for just a complete restart, reset. And it sounds like you had that. And I'm wondering, like, what are the growing pains and the struggles associated with the consumerism that you had to this place of like, I'm not going to consume the same way. I'm not going to spend my money the same way. That, that can't just be an easy break. Or is it when you have set your mind to it? That's a great question. I mean, there are a few questions in there. You know, when I came, so just to continue the narrative, I volunteered for two years paying my way to do so. So that's kind of income negative. And I came back to New York City at 30, having seen people drink dirty water. There was a particular irony for me because I used to sell Voss water for $10 a bottle in the clubs and people wouldn't even open the water. You know, they would just buy 20 bottles and let it sit there because they were drinking champagne or vodka instead. So I came back at 30, a life completely transformed. I'd quit drugs. I'd quit smoking. I'd quit having sex. I'd quit alcohol. I mean, I was just completely different. I mean, I just kind of set down all the vices in, in one go, in one night. Wow. Going out with a bang, I will say. But, you know, when I came back, I didn't have any money. I was living on the closet floor of a friend's house. And I started Charity Water from his living room, sleeping on a walk-in closet floor because they didn't charge me any rent. 
at the time. I think my first salary months later was $48,000 a year in New York City. So there, there was nothing. I mean, I was, I was in a way in the early days, just existing off of the kindness of strangers who would take me out for lunch or dinner. You know, like, let's, let's feed the, uh, the budding humanitarian or, or social entrepreneur. So it wasn't even an option to go out and, and live, you know, the life of excess because there was no income. I mean, I'm, I'm starting a charity. I don't even know this is going to make it, that we're going to get our 501c3 tax status. I mean, there were so many unknowns in the very beginning. Yeah, it's probably helpful that you don't have the money to afford the vices, but it's really impressive that you can cut out all the vices in one fail swoop. And I know a handful of other people have done it. And I know this could often be a challenge, but it's incredible that you were able to do that, obviously, probably with the help of other people, too. But and there was a lot of Nicorette going on. I remember I remember yeah. this one moment I'm in Africa you know, I'm Jonesy. I used to smoke two packs of Marlboro Reds a day. So like 40 <laughs> cigarettes a day without fail. You know, if Reds weren't there, I would smoke the unfiltered Luckies. I remember, I remember having the patch on uh, and chewing like four blister packs of Nicorette <laughs> at the same time. So <laughs> there was, yeah, it, it wasn't just that easy, but I really wanted my life to look different. And I, I'm an Enneagram 8, so I, I just ex- extreme is easier for me then, oh, I'm just going to dabble in all this stuff and, and slowly pare back the vice. I just needed to kind of say, uh, I'm done. I should point out, I do drink today. I love craft beer and, uh, and good wine. Um, but that's, that's probably the only one that I, that I kept. I haven't had a cigarette in you know, 17 or 18 years and haven't touched any of the drugs we used to do or any of that stuff. You know, I made a vow that I would, I used to love gambling. So I made a vow that I would never gamble again, which I have to say, you know, I speak in Las Vegas a lot. And it's not always been easy. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. Well, I mean, I just love, I love commitments where people are all in. And I love when they're big and when you have like, you know, the true BHAG, right? The big, hairy, audacious goal and what it is that you want for your life or what you want to build for others trumps the immediate needs now or the immediate needs you think you need or feel like you need. So that's cool. Like you, I love some good craft beer and and fine wine. That is a blast to me. I'm a student of those things because Mm. it's fascinating to learn about. And there's so much history, especially on the wine side of things. So let's dig in a little bit more on charity water. Yeah. So when did you make the, the pivot or transition from being like a paying member to work here, right? $500 you were paying to where maybe you were actually making money and how you got into a position to run an organization, to start and run one. Yeah. Well, I, ca- I came back and the, the short answer is I wanted, I was working for this group called Mercy Ships, which operated uh, a huge hospital ship off the coast of Africa. And I wanted to help them and, you know, potentially have a job with them. And they just weren't really interested. I mean, I was this kind of crazy New Yorker. I think I was successful in that role on the ship. And I, I got him a lot of media, I helped him raise awareness and, and money through, you know, through kind of promoting them, really. But that door just shut. So I said, all right, well, if they don't want me, you know, what did I see when I was there in uh, West Africa? And, and, you know, I'd spent a lot of time in you know, dozens of villages. And the one thing that I had seen that kind of was my holy discontent, I guess, was just people drinking disgusting water. And it was related to health because I was with, I was embedded with these doctors and nurses and surgeons 
And we were doing these very expensive surgeries for facial tumors and flesh-eating disease and all sorts of problems in a, in a country without access to, to healthcare. But I learned that really two things. Half the country didn't have clean water to drink. Or said another way, half the people in the country I was living in were drinking dirty, contaminated, disgusting water. And then number two, the World Health Organization had said at the time, half the disease is because people are drinking dirty water. So for me, it was just kind of that jump to the question behind the question or the, the root cause of so much of the sickness and suffering we were seeing, which was the lack of access to clean water. And, you know, Justin, I've now been to 70 countries, you know, I've been to Africa 55 or 60 times. The terrible irony in so many of these areas is that the clean water is beneath the feet. It is underneath these communities. But I saw that they just didn't have the access to the, the drilling equipment or the resources, the money to get that clean water out of the ground. And I said, well, I think maybe I can do that. I mean, it, when you see your first well drilled, it seems like one of the most simplest things. Like, why are we not doing more of this? You know, for the cost of an expensive watch or, you know, a really good night out partying, 300 people in a village could get clean water for the first time. So really that door shut and I just said, well, I'm going to start a charity that helps people get water. Charity water. <laughs> that wasn't a wildly creative idea at the time, but it was clear and simple. And I had the advantage of being 30, not knowing anything about institutional philanthropy, not knowing anything about how to run an international NGO or, or non-governmental you know, humanitarian organization. So I was just asking my friends, what do you think about water? You think people should have water? And you know, 100% of people would say yes. And then I started understanding why some of them were skeptical and cynical uh, when it came to giving to charity. And then I really got excited about trying to disrupt, which is such an overused word these days, but it wasn't back then, you know, disrupt kind of the, the charitable business model, which if you'd asked a lot of people, you know, 15 years ago means we give money to a charity. We never hear anything about what happens to that money. And then the charity just keeps asking us for more money, you know, until we eventually tell them to stop. Yeah. And, and to take it one step further, I actually think the majority of charities out there are not very transparent with how much that money is actually going to the charitable cause, where a lot of it's gobbled up in administrative fees and salaries and just stuff that if you really knew the financials, you'd be disgusted. Like I search really hard to find charities that really they do the work they say they're going to do. Their budgets are good. The percentage of money raised to the percentage get, you know, actually given to these causes is very high and, and reasonable. Like that is most people don't realize like that's a huge issue. It is. It is. And at the time, you know, I remember Anderson Cooper, you know, was knocking on the doors of some terrible charity leader, you know, who hired his mothers and cousins and brothers and nephews and, you know, was sending three cents on the dollar if that, and keeping 97%. So that was, charitable trust was was really low. In fact, I remember coming across a USA Today poll that found 40% of Americans just said they don't trust charities. More recently, NYU did a study, found 70% of Americans believe charities waste their money. So you're not alone in that. And I really had kind of like this, this really clear idea, well, what if I could take the most common objection off the table through a new business model. And I said, 
you know, I'm going to create a business structure where 100% of every donation we ever take in goes into a separately audited bank account and 100% of that money goes to the field to build water projects. I'm then going to open up another overhead bank account and I'm personally going to raise all of the overhead, all the staffing costs, the toner for the Epson copy machine, the office rent, all that is going to be separate from a very small group of donors or entrepreneurs or business leaders who understand there are costs to running an efficient charity, but it would never be the public's problem. I said, you know, just from a branding standpoint, I'm going to take it one step farther. I'm going to promise in perpetuity to pay back the credit card fee transactions incurred on every gift. Uh, let me tell you, that sounded like nothing at the beginning. This year, I think it's $700,000. Wow. So if you go online and give $100 on your Amex, I wish I got 100 but I get about 97 And we pay back the $3 that Amex took so we can send and track your $100 donation to the field. So the first idea was this 100% model. And of course, you know, at the time, Justin, everyone's saying, this is a dumb idea. How will you pay for your staff? Nobody wants to pay for overhead. I wasn't sure it was going to work either. But I thought if we could pull this double audited bank account model off, it would be wildly powerful. And I could reach out to the 40% that didn't trust charities or the 70% and say, every single penny, pound, dollar, euro, krona goes directly to the cause. And then the second big idea was just using technology at the time to prove where the money went, where these wells or other water projects we'd be building were located when they were completed. This dates me, but I started the same time as Google Earth and Google Maps. And it's kind of hard to imagine a world without Google Maps. But I, I met the founder and I was in six months into Charity Water maybe. And, and I realized that Google was creating a free place where we could prove to the public where every single well we built was. And we could show a donor the satellite image, thanks to Google satellites, of the well that they funded and the, the location. So, you know, I think it's hard if you're running a huge organization now to do that. But our first well was just on Google. And then our next 10 wells were on Google. And our next 40 wells were on Google. Now we have 111,000 across 29 nations. And we just built that into the business model. So those were kind of the two big ideas. You know, the third idea was just this belief that for our work to be culturally appropriate and sustainable, it had to be led by the locals in each of these countries. So, you know, no dude from New York like me should be running around operating a drilling rig in Malawi or, you know, Cambodia. I could be a promoter. I could build awareness and a movement and create an efficient organization. You know, maybe a fundraising machine that is the most transparent, I wanted to build the most transparent charity in the history of the world. So that was kind of a stated goal early on. And then we would hire teams of Ethiopians and uh, Cambodians and in each of these countries to actually go and drill the wells or build the rainwater harvesting systems or you know construct these water projects. So we'd be creating thousands of local jobs as we scaled. So we just put those three simple ideas together and I threw a party in a nightclub for day one. And I invited people to come I gave them open bar for an hour and they had to pay, they had to donate $20 to get in the door. And we collected $15,000 that night. We carefully photographed it and double counted it and triple counted it and took you know, photos of all the cash. And then we took it to the bank. And then we sent 100% of that to the field and we did our first few wells. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a special offer that I created for the Lifestyle Investor community. 
When I look back at my investing journey, there's one specific investment in particular that was the spark to increasing my net worth and allowing me to leave my job to become a lifestyle investor. I'm talking about mobile home parks. Yes, mobile home parks. If you just cringed a little, that's exactly why these provide such a great opportunity because of the negative stigma and stereotype people might have. In reality, this is an incredible investment that you can get into with little or no money down. You can also quickly get a return on your capital. You can immediately cash flow on day one. You can hold it forever as a cash cow. You get accelerated depreciation to reduce or eliminate the taxes that you would owe. And often the seller will finance the deal so you don't need a bank. You can also buy them at the highest cap rate of all real estate meaning it's the cheapest real estate to buy based on the income that it generates. And it's the lowest default rate of all real estate, meaning it's the safest asset class to own in real estate. I use this asset class to start my journey in real estate investing and grow my net worth to over eight figures all before I turned 40. And out of all the questions that people ask me, how do I get into mobile home parks is still the number one question that I get which is why I put together this mobile home park masterclass. This is a paid class that I'm offering for a limited time only. For all the details, head over to justindonald.com forward slash MHP and watch the video, which outlines all the details about the class and exactly what you get when you sign up. You'll also hear the incredible success stories from students who have gone through my content and are now making hundreds of thousands of dollars in passive income. If you want to take the same first step that I did that helped me take both my wife and I from working full-time jobs to becoming lifestyle investors, join me in my mobile home park masterclass and let's get started on your journey to becoming a lifestyle investor. Visit justindonald.com forward slash MHP for all the details. That's incredible. I, I love hearing the story. And, you know, it's it's interesting. So my wife and I really believe in these clean water projects. And for years, we've been really involved in some way, shape or form trying to bring clean water, whether it be through Living Water International or Samaritan's Purse or many of these different organizations that are doing it. And I think most people don't realize that like if you're living in a first world country, you got clean water. It's not a big deal. But there are, you know, what, over a billion people that don't have clean drinking water. And so like this is a major, major crisis worldwide that most people listening to this podcast have, you know, have never had to worry about. They may not even recognize that this is a problem, but it is. And I'm glad that you're doing something. And I think there's something really special about the fact that you've never been, you know, I I look at politically, you know, I I never want to get into politics, but there was once a time where there was no such thing as a career politician, right? It, It was, you'd find people from you know, the the local area, they were, you know, doing whatever they did, whatever their profession was. And part of their duty was to donate, you know, some of their time. Now it's a lot different where you have these career roles. Well, there are pros and cons to that. And inside of like the world of nonprofit, if you are kind of just following the old playbook, then you're going to do the same things you've always done. Like for you, you weren't involved in that world. So you could come in and say, hey, 
Why hasn't anyone ever tried this? Separate accounts, raising money for overhead, raising money that actually 100% goes to the project, you know, and, and I think that's incredible. And for me in the financial space, I think because I never worked in corporate America, I never worked uh, for corporate finance. Same thing here is like, I never saw the way that it just is. And I was able yeah. to say, hey, this actually makes more sense, you know, to why, why are we having these situations where financial advisors make money, but their people don't like, why, why does that even that exist? Like that shouldn't exist. There's a better model. And so you've been able to discover that in the charitable realms. I think it's just so incredible. Yeah. And just, you know, I know your, your audience uh, cares deeply about business models and, and is interested in this stuff. So the way that we run the organization today at scale, we raised $100 million last year in cash and, and stock donations. 131 wow. families pay all the overhead. So those 131 people love paying staff salaries. They love paying for all the flights to the field. They don't mind paying for insurance or, you know, uh, or the phone bills or the Epson copy toner. That has allowed over a million donors to give in the purest way possible. And those 130 people, I'd say 80% of them built businesses. And they know that your business is only as good as the talent you're able to attract and recruit. So often, you know, what I hear from that team is like, are you paying your people enough, right? They're not, they're not kind of nickeling and diming on the budget. They want to make sure we are competing with Apple or Twitter or Square or Google for software designers, for UI and UX designers, that we're having the very best people. And, you know, that's, they're kind of like our investors. So it's not that hard. They love giving to overhead. You know, they just want, they want an efficient, transparent organization. And that's what they require. Yeah. And I think it's important to realize, like in the world of entrepreneurs, and by the way, my community is made up of all kinds of professionals. I'd say the majority are entrepreneurs, but we have all kinds of different levels of professionals that are part of the lifestyle investor. And so one of the cool things is when you run a business or you're involved in a business, you recognize those needs differently than someone that doesn't. So for example, as an entrepreneur myself, I totally recognize that you have to pay, like you, you need good incentives to attract really good people. Like you could be on the cheap, but then you may not get the person that's going the extra mile. So it makes sense to spend more to get someone that's going to go, you know, laps around, you know, other candidates for the mission. And so I can see how the majority of people that are entrepreneurs that are donating to this overhead fund uh, or overhead capital raise is because they get it. They get it at a high level. But the other thing to consider is there are a lot of groups out there. If you run a business, you have money that you probably have allocated as charitable dollars and it needs to go somewhere. And let me make the case. It costs $10,000 to build a water project for a community of 250 people. My wife and I now, we I wrote a book where the advance went to Charity Water. We have personally committed over a million dollars now to our own organization. I love funding water projects in the name of my kids, in the name of lost ones that we love. Like it is such a compelling way to spend philanthropic capital because it all starts with water. Like life starts with water. If you don't have water, you're not healthy. If your kids don't have water at their school, the teenage girls are dropping out 
because they're staying home four or five days every single month. If there's no water, there's no sanitation. If they've got to go get water that's six hours away from the home, which is very common, they don't get an education. You know, so it, it, it impacts women and girls. It impacts health. It impacts the local economy. There was a, a famous 88-page paper that came out of the U.S. that tracked the economic benefit of simply bringing water and sanitation into a community. And they found every dollar returned a minimum of $4. So an average of 4 to $8, in some cases, a 20x economic return. And the big one there, Justin, is the time that was wasted walking for dirty water is reclaimed and turned into productive work or productive income. You know, I remember when I started not believing the stat that 40 billion hours are wasted by women walking for Africa every year. So imagine free, you know, the imagine the, the power. That's more than, and I do realize this is a slightly ironic example, but it's more than the entire economy of France. Every single human being working in the, the country of France doesn't equal 40 billion hours every year. So that's one of the great things about water. And it's a little better than what you said. We're down to 771 million people without water. It was a billion when I started. Uh, and, and it's one in 10 people alive. So, you know, maybe something to consider. I, this is a little gimmicky, but a guy that, that works for me was, was in the field once and he saw the water crisis and he came home to his three bedroom modest house in Tennessee and he counted every tap that he had in his house. And he had 17, 17 places where clean water came out in his very modest three bedroom house. So, you know, to your point earlier, I mean, there's probably people listening that have a hundred taps, you know, in their house and garden hoses and maybe uh, pools and irrigation systems. We just take clean water for granted. We were born into the 90%. We were born into a world where we just have this thing. I mean, we're never even thirsty. I mean, you go run a marathon and there's people with cups every 10 feet, right? Making sure everyone stays hydrated. And that's just not the reality or the experience for you know, two Americas full of people, 770 million people. And look, we just think that number should be zero. It's a simple mission. Everybody should have clean drinking water. We know how to solve it. There's not a single person alive who we're scratching our heads and saying, we don't know how to get them water. Now, it costs money. There are myriad solutions for different environments, but we can always solve the problem for every single human being. That's not true with pancreatic cancer for example, or ALS, or you know, many of these kind of challenges that have mystified people. And we're spending billions of dollars of research, but we don't have the answer. We do have the, the answer for water. Uh, and that's why. So I'm grateful that, that you and your family have been supporting this issue for a while. Uh, the money goes really far, and, and it makes a huge, huge impact in lives. Did I still have you? Yeah, that is fantastic. I love hearing that. Not to mention that there's also the element of safety when you're sending people across, you know, in many cases, this is like hours to get, it's not even clean water, but it's the cleanest water that they can get. Justin, I mean, I know this sounds far-fetched, but I have heard dozens of stories from women that have either been attacked by hyenas or lions at water holes or crocodiles. Wow. And, you know, have escaped, narrowly escaped a crocodile. I've been in villages where they've named four women who were dragged off at the waterhole by crocodiles and never seen again into the river. But then they say, well, where else do we go? This is the only source of water. So we're careful and we're scared. And, you know, not to mention the rape that, that can happen in some of these long walks away from home. One of the things that, 
you know, I learned in Ethiopia that I'd never really considered before. Many of the women are giving birth at that water hole shared with the animals. They might be six hours from their home because you need a lot of water when you're giving birth. So, you know, it's, it's more than just bringing a jerry can or two, two jerry cans, 10 gallons home to prepare for that. So, you know, imagine being a woman giving birth to your child, you know, at night when you know there's coyotes and hyenas and other animals that are around. And that's just the reality for, for so many people around the world, not just in Africa, through other parts of India and Southeast Asia as well. And for those of us in first world countries, it's just unfathomable to even think that that is a reality somewhere. I just think it's so cool what you're doing, that you've raised almost $700 million. And I think you said 111,000 wells. Uh, that's, that's fantastic. And by the way, you were being modest about your book because I, I believe your book was a New York Times bestseller called Thirst, right? A story of redemption, compassion, and mission to bring clean water to the world. You're very kind. Um, so it, t- tell me about uh, this process of, of writing a book. I mean, is it, did you feel like you needed to do this to create attention for this organization? And uh, like, you know, what, what really was the, you know, the impetus behind it? You know, it's, it, it's funny. I'm just trying to put together the pieces. But I remember once, you know, we, we scaled very quickly in the early days. We, we were also very fortunate to have to birth our organization in the dawn of social media. So I spoke at Twitter headquarters when there were 40 total people in the company. And it was Jack, Biz, and Ev, you know, and and we became the first charity to get a million Twitter followers. You know, I spoke at Instagram, Facebook early on. I mean, we had so many of these relationships that helped us kind of maybe scale as a nonprofit alongside of some of these big uh, social media companies. So... You know, I remember sitting with somebody at CAA who was a really good friend, and she's like, you better tell your story before somebody else does. <laughs> and I, that's such a weird thing, because like, I don't do anything in my life that's defensive. But, you know, I remember saying to her, like, I'm way too young to write a memoir. And, you know, and then she was kind of joking about that and said, you know, you really should try to put your story out there. It could not only raise awareness for your work, helping people get clean water, and advance the mission, but you might inspire a bunch of other social entrepreneurs who, you know, might say, well, if a freaking cracked out nightclub promoter, you know, can go raise three quarters of a million dollars and help 15 million people, (laughs) maybe I could too, you know, for, for my issue. So that was really the thought was to, you know, inspire people with creativity and innovation. Also, you know, in the book, I talk about some of the boneheaded, stupid things we did along the way and the times that we almost went bankrupt and almost didn't make it. So it's not a story of just everything went right. Uh, and I would, I was hoping that that would encourage other people. And, and, you know, it's been out for a little while now and I've gotten, you know, hundreds of emails from people saying, you know, I just read this in college in my social entrepreneurship class, which they have social entrepreneurship classes now. That's incredible. Which is amazing, you know? And I'm not going to go pursue water, but I am going to go pursue justice for children or shelter or, you know, make sure nobody goes to bed hungry. So, yeah, it was it was an, it was a cool experience writing it. I mean, it, at first thought, you know, we were going to keep all the money and, you know, set up college funds for our kids. And then I got to a point really that last minute just said, you know what, I'm just going to give away the whole advance and all the proceeds domestically, internationally towards the work. and. You know, I think sometimes when you're willing to give something away, uh, it it grows. So it's been it's been cool to see uh, to see the impact of of the book. 
That's incredible. I love hearing that. That's a decision I made with my book as well, where 100% of the proceeds are donated to charitable causes. And at this point, it's all gone to an organization called Love Justice International, and they stop human trafficking in 26 countries around the world and do incredible, incredible work. And yeah, I think that it's, um, it's amazing when you can have some sort of IP or, you know, some sort of asset that is responsible for, you know, creating change and creating income that goes towards facilitating that change. I think that's greater than any amount of money that you and I could ever consume from that product. Like there's just going to be yeah. ample opportunity to earn in, uh, in other ways. Yep. That's cool. So uh, this has been just a fascinating interview and I'm, I just love learning about you. I love learning about your company, your organization, Scott. Uh, how can we find out more about you? You know, we've got a pretty good website. There's actually, if, if people wanted to see some of the images, um, we've got a film now uh, called The Spring uh, that's also on our website, charitywater.org, that's been viewed uh, now over 100 million times across platforms. And, you know, it's one thing to talk about people drinking dirty water. It's another to see it. Uh, it's one thing to kind of talk about a community getting clean water. It's another to see water shooting up into the sky with 400 people dancing and celebrating you know, knowing that their lives will be forever changed because someone thousands of miles away cared about them and wrote a $10,000 check, you know, or, or a, a kid went out there and sold lemonade and contributed, you know, $47 and 21 cents. And that went towards the, the construction of their project. So yeah, charitywater.org uh, is a great way to get involved. And then we also have this unbelievable community called The Spring, which is just the people that show up every month in the same way they do for Netflix or Spotify or Amazon Prime, except we don't give you music or movies or next day shipping. And 100% of that goes directly to people in need. Kind of moving, pivoting uh, to that subscription model in year 10 helped take us from a $30 million-ish organization to a $100 million a year organization. So we're really being powered now by so many people across, I think, 147 countries who give what they can every month. And that consistency allows us to grow and, and scale our efforts. Oh, that's incredible. I so just, that's, called the, that's called The Spring. You can go to thespring.com and the video's there. And um, everybody's more than welcome to, to join. I love it. Well, well, thank you so much, Scott. I appreciate that. And I, I've had a few groups, namely, you know, Charity Water with you and Love Justice International that have both been able to share their message on this podcast. And I hope that this can be a platform to educate. You know, my whole goal is to help people create financial freedom, but we don't have to wait until we have financial freedom to be able to give to causes and help support things. And then when we accomplish uh, and achieve financial freedom, it really gives us the opportunity to be even more charitable and to use that surplus income in a way that it really helps the world. And so I love what you're doing. I want to close out today's session in the way that I do every single week, which is this. What's one step you can take today to move towards financial freedom and living the life that you truly desire on your terms, not by default, but rather by design? And I'm just going to add on to that. And in doing so, what can you do to support great organizations like Charity Water and so many others that are out there? So thanks again, and uh, we'll catch you all next week. Of course. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who could benefit from this episode, would you share it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all the resources mentioned, visit www.justindonald.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor.